Welcome to Deepak Cast, a podcast series from the DeBartolo Performing Arts Center at the University of Notre Dame. My name is Ted Barron. I'm the executive director at the DeBartolo Performing Arts Center. We are in the midst of our latest series, Indie Film. Uh, this is episode two, which is going to focus on the film Night of the Living Dead. Indie Film is a series in which we'll be discussing some of the most important works in the history of American independent film. And this week, we get Get a little spooky uh, with one of the one of the films that actually established uh, the horror genre as we know it today. Um, so, Night of the Living Dead. Uh, part of the context for this film um, is to think about it as it's a, in terms of its association with kind of a wave of exploitation films in the 1960s, as we kind of chronicle a history of American independent cinema. Uh, it's important to recognize, you know, that. In addition to, you know, what were considered kind of the quality films uh, of uh, of this history, that usually and usually the films are recognized in this history because they have a kind of mark of quality to them. There are also films that use techniques associated with independent associated with independent production that aren't necessarily aspiring to any kind of critical acclaim, and that was certainly the case with a lot of works uh, that were being produced by. Uh, uh, the distributor American International Pictures and its notable uh, and the, the notable figure associated with AIP, Roger Corman, uh, who is credited with giving uh, birth to any number of uh, filmmakers and film movements. We can trace you know some of the key filmmakers of the New Hollywood movement, like Francis Ford Coppola, Martin Scorsese, Brian De Palma. Uh, to Corman. Um, there's also a later wave with people like Joe Dante and John Sayles, who's considered one of the most um, kind of dedicated figures of the uh, indie film scene, um, all of whom got their start or certainly um, got a boost from the opportunity to work with Roger Corman. And Corman's model was fairly simple. It was kind of a fast and cheap approach to filmmaking, um, you know, get films in and out of theaters quickly uh, so that you could continue to produce more work and uh, have a steady kind of churn of films. And these were films that tended to center around or uh, prominently feature elements of, of horror, um, uh, sort of explicit action and, of course, sexual content uh, within, within these works. So um, this model of exploitation films um, provides uh, a, a source of inspiration for a lot of other filmmakers. Um, it's hard to say whether uh, George Romero, uh, the director of Night of the Living Dead, was kind of looking in this direction, but he certainly was trying to find a more economical means to, to make films that were kind of true to his uh, particular interests. So uh, Romero was born in New York City in the Bronx uh, and eventually ended up in Pittsburgh, Pennsylvania, where he studied at uh, Carnegie Mellon, which was then the Carnegie Institute of Technology. Uh, but after graduating from school, he decided to stay in Pittsburgh working on short films, um, some of which were in the uh, were featured in the early days of uh, Pittsburgh's favorite son's uh, TV show, uh, Mr. Rogers, uh, in, on Mr. Rogers' Neighborhood. Um, 
Corman, uh, I'm sorry, Romero, let's distinguish our indie legends, uh, Romero from, Corgin, uh, from Corman, uh, uh, he, along with a, a couple of friends, formed their own production company, Latent Image, in the 1960s, which was primarily filming TV commercials, uh, but also gave them a chance to experiment with some, some short narrative films that were kind of just pet projects of their own. Um, just to recognize that, you know, there's this interesting intersection between the more commercial aspects of what Romero and his colleagues were uh, trying to accomplish and um, and some of the, their more creative uh, ambitions. Um, but what eventually they decided they wanted to, but, you know, getting kind of frustrated and bored with, with those more, you know, jobs for hire, uh, they were interested in making a film of their own. Um, and so the Leighton Image team came up with uh, the concept for Night of the Living Dead. Um, and it was a process in order to shoot the film. Took, it took about nine months because, um, because they weren't being paid uh, particularly well to, to work on the film or at all. Um, they had to kind of fit, it, fit in um, sh- uh, their shooting schedule amidst other professional projects. So they'd, sh- they'd shoot for a few days, then they'd go off for a couple of weeks and you know work on other projects, come back, shoot for a couple of days, and so on and so on over a course of about nine months. Um, the budget for the film was about $125,000, mostly uh, self-funded. They got they, they had some additional help, including uh, from some of the cast members, which I'll uh, mention momentarily. Uh, the film itself uh, is a film that, uh, the, in terms of the plot of the film, uh, it centers on kind of an, a group of characters who are facing threat from kind of a, an uncertain presence uh, within their community. Um, and how they uh, how they ultimately try to survive. Um, the film opens with the character of Barbara, uh, who is uh, visiting a cemetery with her brother Johnny. They're going to pay respects to their late father. And while there, they are attacked by one of uh, the dead, as as Romero refers to them. He never actually calls them zombies. This is a film that's often credited as being the prototype for uh, zombie films and uh, sort of being the source for the inspiration, the 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 media fueled inspiration of uh, of zombie culture uh, within you know within film and television, video games, you name it. Uh, but Romero. Uh, often, you know, will quickly dismiss the idea that this is a zombie film because he he only calls them the dead. Um, so there, uh, so Barbara and Johnny they uh, they get to meet one of the members of the dead, not that not the Grateful Dead, um, who uh, attacks them, ultimately kills Johnny. Barbara flees and and takes uh, and hide and ultimately takes refuge in uh, what looks to be an abandoned farmhouse. Uh, while she's there, she meets a character by the name of Ben who comes in much more. Uh, Barbara's really traumatized by seeing her brother killed. Um, she is, uh, when she meets Ben who comes into the house, um, he boards up the doors and windows, looks to be much more resourceful. They soon meet uh, a man by the name of Harry Cooper who's been hiding out in the basement with his wife and daughter. And it should be noted that um, Harry and uh, Harry and his wife are played by Carl Hardman and Marilyn Eastman, who were who had their own uh, company in uh, in Pittsburgh, which provided some of the funding for the film. So they are a real life couple, and actually their daughter uh, Kira plays 
uh, their own plays the daughter of the Cooper family, Karen, uh, in the film. Uh, so they've been hiding out in the basement. And then there's uh, two more characters, uh, Tom, who's been holed up with his girlfriend, Judy. So what the bulk of the film follows essentially are, is this group of characters who've now been uh, forced into hiding in this farmhouse as they desperately try to fend off attacks uh, by the dead um, and uh, – and, and interestingly, you know, in terms – in between these moments of, of battle essentially uh, where they're trying to uh, kill off the, the unkillable it seems like, um, there is a lot of uh, dialogue between the characters often uh, dispute about, you know, what approach they should be taking and um, – and how they should be and what their what their strategy is going to be. But coupled with all of this are radio and TV news broadcasts, which try to provide a scientific explanation for the rise of the dead. It suggested it might have been uh, radiation uh, that came from outer space. But it almost doesn't matter because most of the um, – you know that explanation almost you know seems secondary to the main interest of the film, which is this interaction between uh, this really interesting group of characters. Um, one of the the more uh, compelling uh, choices within the film was the casting of Dwayne Jones as the lead uh, as the lead character Ben. Uh, Dwayne is African American. Uh, the character was not written actually to be played by a black actor. Um, as Romero has uh, has shared on many occasions, he was simply the best actor who auditioned for the role. So they just they tried to essentially it was a, a colorblind uh, casting process, um, and Jones emerged as as the most uh, significant talent among the group. The rest of the cast is it's it's mostly unknown or non uh, non professional actors. Uh, a lot of local Pittsburgh people. Uh, kind of worked into the film. And given the shooting schedule, it's understandable why, why they'd be facing that constraint in terms in terms of casting. Um, one of the reasons why the film was so effective um, is its unique use of cinematography because what uh, the film consists of are mostly a, a series of shots that will that you'll see within the film that in which it's uh, most of the most often the camera is mounted on a tripod, but then when it comes to particular moments of confrontation or action, uh, they shift to handheld cinematography, which only adds uh, to the tension um, within uh, within the film. Uh, the film itself uh, was uh, ended up being a very big uh, box office hit, uh, but interestingly, the filmmakers saw very little profit, partly due to the the business arrangements that ultimately had to be put into place to get the film into theaters. And on its initial release in 1968, um, the film played some small independent theaters and drive-ins. Uh, mainly in Pittsburgh, and then eventually it did get to New York, but uh, didn't really have much of an impact. It quickly uh, disappeared from screens. Um, the film was uh, re-released in 1969, where it developed a cult following. Um, so there was some enthusiasm, particularly from the French, uh, who were really interested in this uh, in this kind of new approach that Romero seemed to be bringing into his work. And then when it was released again in 1970, it started to really take off and eventually um, uh, had it was such a box office success, it grossed about $30 million. Uh, but again, it was not... Uh, something that where Romero and the rest of uh, the rest of the um, the latent uh, 
the latent image team saw much uh, saw much profit. Um, the film, interestingly, is uh, you know it's become such a cultural presence because of you know it's it's seen as kind of again the prototype for the zombie film. Um, but also, uh, you know, putting aside that uh, genre element to the film is if we look at the content of the film in the way that the conflicts play out between uh, the act, the characters who are as they're holed up within the farmhouse, and in particular in a multiracial casting of the film. Uh, it's often discussed through the lens of the 1968 Democratic Convention that this is a film that, that could only be made in 1968 because of all of the social upheaval. Um, the uh, there there are comparisons made to you know other acts of violence in the 60s uh, in 68. You know, most notably the death of. Uh, Martin Luther King. Uh, Romero points out that, you know, the film was already finished by the time uh, King was killed. So that was not something that was kind of in their consciousness when they were uh, when they were making the film. Um, so that that kind of retrospective uh, kind of alignment with of the film with all of the other activities of 68 um, is something that happens later on, and it's a much more gradual process. Uh, as you know, the film ultimately wasn't really seen by a lot of people at the time of its release, um, uh, and it's only later on when there's enough. Uh, you know, it, it took time to build an audience, and there, then there's enough critical distance to try to consider it relative to all that was going on in '68. Um, another key element of the film is if we think about this relative to the horror genre. Um, the film is often, uh, although you know, it uses very um, pristine black and white cinematography. Uh, given that it was a fairly low budget uh, production, uh, the way in which the uh, scenes are filmed, um, there's really strong kind of contrasts that are actually quite um, expressionistic within the film. Uh, but the but in terms of how it functions as a horror film, it's actually quite gory at times. Um, you know, this might have been uh, you know an even bigger reason for the film's box office success than than being a kind of cultural touchstone to you know the events of the late '60s. Um, you know, the 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 the, uh, the dead as a kind of a collective of characters within the film, um, they typically kill their victims by devouring their flesh, um, which leads for some uh, really kind of gruesome scenes uh, within the film. But again, I mean, it's it's done. I mean, it's expressionistic. It's uh, but but still quite effective. Uh, but I think sort of recasts the horror film from what Roger Corman had been doing. And certainly, you know, if we think about horror up until that point in history, it's really defined by um, movie studios like Universal uh, with um, you know their uh, their monster movies, the Frankenstein franchise, the Dracula franchise, those being much more kind of psychological, whereas this uh, this becomes much more explicit. And I would say that, you know, kind of one of the things that, uh, you know, where this fits interestingly into the realm of independent cinema is that we see a lot of films that have elements of realism. And this, this film kind of sits at an interesting intersection between these sort of outrageous elements of horror uh, with a more realistic setting. I mean, the film's shot on location, in outside of Pittsburgh um, uses um, you know just very natural kind of settings, natural lighting, 
to uh, to capture this particular experience. Um, the film is also notable um, kind of in the tradition of, uh, if we think about the tradition of horror films in terms of what we don't see. Um, there's a great scene in Vincent Minnelli's film, uh, The Bad and the Beautiful, uh, where Kirk Douglas plays a kind of ruthless uh, film producer. And he's he's trying to make his latest you know version of a horror film, and there uh, the, are, there are these characters uh, who are who are giant cats who are supposed to be kind of the the, the threat within the film. Uh, well, when he looks at the the cat costumes that these that the actors are supposed to wear, he sees how ridiculous they look, and so he comes up uh, with the idea that um, if he were to conceal uh, those uh, characters, and so you wouldn't see them. Um, they would actually be much more effective because you know it's almost what we don't see that's more that's more scary to us, and when we kind of imagine uh, the horror of the film, um, that it becomes uh, much more effective. This was a, this was a direct reference to the work of Val uh, Val Luton and uh, films like Cat People. Um, I walked with a zombie. Interesting, a, another proto zombie film. Um, where you know a lot of that horror is is more kind of in one's head. So um, I you know I talk about Night of the Living Dead relative to this because it kind of another point of intersection is where uh, we there are a lot of um, things that we don't see within the film as much as you know we have the explicit gore of certain uh, you know characters being killed and. Um, and other kind of death scenes within the film. There's also a lot of things that happen um, off screen um, to kind of build to that to that sense of horror. Uh, we might see the aftermath of a, of a of a death rather than it, uh, the actual you know act of killing itself. Um, it's also it also kind of sets a standard for horror uh, films that provide a kind of uh, that focus on stories of containment, something that is probably quite valued uh, within. Um, the realm of independent cinema, if we think about, you know, trying to minimize uh, setting and location uh, for economical reasons, you know, to just uh, kind of have things, uh, you know, have sort of threats that are created when, you know, characters are kind of trapped within a house. Um, we certainly see that in later iterations of, of the horror genre, but in particular in terms of independent uh, horror film. Um, this, you know, we can say that, um, you know, this film is important for the establishment of some new ideas about what horror films could do. But also, you know, this intersection of, of just the, the notion of independent film with horror. If we look at some of the more commercially successful horror films of the 1970s, films like Texas Chainsaw Massacre and Halloween – um, those were independent productions, um, fairly low budget, uh, making you know use of available resources, but then hugely successful because of uh, the boundaries that they push. And of course, in the case of both of those films, you have the, uh, the you know the establishment of very strong franchises. And then when we get a sort of later wave of horror uh, in the 1990s, um, this it kind of culminates with uh, the success of the film The Blair Witch Project. Uh, which is, you know, argue, uh, which is kind of ranked as one of the most profitable um, films of all time in terms of return on investment. You know what the film made at the box office versus its original budget, but also in terms of uh, just independent film in general. 
uh, it's it's uh, it was it was such a massive success. And I think sort in in with that success, we get uh, th- you know the stage is set for. Um, the emergence of Blumhouse as uh, kind of the voice of uh, the studio or the production company, rather, that's you know kind of the voice of of the horror film today. So, um, uh, Night of the Living Dead has a has a lot of lasting impact. Whether it's you know whether it is that you know uh, reflection on particular social conditions, uh, which again we you know we kind of consider those more retroactively. Or the way it sort of recognized that um, the horror genre could be actually a, a quite economical way to make a film and then um, generate a lot of enthusiasm because part of the reason why indie horror has, you know, gone on to such success over the years is because of, uh, you know, because of the profitability and, and the way it's been able to connect with audiences. So that wraps up this episode. We'll continue our discussion of indie film next week.